our Bibles to Luke's Gospel this morning, Luke chapter 23. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we sure like you to have a Bible so you can listen to the sermon, but also follow along with your own eyes. There are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them and uh, they'll spot you and get a Bible into your hands and that way the Word of God can come in the ear gate and the eye gate this morning into your heart. And so take advantage of that. Sunday mornings we're looking at the studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we pick things up. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Father, everything about the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, every portrait that you give us of it, every jot and tittle that is committed to it, Lord, it really leaves us humbled. We thank you for the love that you have for us and the love that you have for our souls and for our eternities and a love that you have had from eternity for us, Lord, and certainly far longer than we have had a love for our own eternities and our own futures. And we thank you so much, Lord, for providing for the forgiveness and the salvation that you knew each one of us would need. And we pray that this morning as we look at This single aspect of Jesus upon the cross, that we would hear your voice behind your word this morning, that it would speak to us and minister to us, Lord, all that you intend it to. Lord, we pray for each one that stands here right now that has not yet surrendered their lives to you. They haven't yet put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of of their sins. We pray this morning that some light would go on for them, some revelation from your throne that would cause them to realize that today is the day that they can be saved and that today is the day that they should be saved. And so we look to you for that work of your Holy Spirit in this room this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
I think that when one reads this particular section of the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, I, I find myself almost always in thinking about and marveling at how many people through the last 2,000 years have been brought into the kingdom of God because of the hope that they have discovered as a result of this particular event between Jesus and one of the thieves upon the cross next to him. I think that most often this passage is thought of as just simply an account of a man, a thief, saved in the final hours of his life, and it is all of that. But I think it's also one of the most remarkable portraits of faith found in all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. And I also think that in order to fully appreciate how remarkable the faith of this one thief was, it's necessary to once again remember Jesus' physical condition at the time that this thief put his faith in him. Concerning Jesus' physical condition, he's hanging upon a cross. His face and his body have been so ravaged by multiple beatings and a scourging and crucifixion that he is completely unrecognizable for who he is. His beard has been pulled out in clumps. His face is covered with a spit of both Jew and Gentile. Again, we go back to the words of Isaiah the prophet because they can't be improved on. He said of the Messiah, and so his visage, that is his face, was marred more than any man, and his form, that is his body, more than the sons of men. And by the time sinful man got done meeting out all of their scorn and all of their hatred upon Jesus, he was unrecognizable for who he was. And again, Isaiah tells us, by the time sinful man got done pouring again their hatred and their, and their scorn upon him, the wounds that he bore were so grotesque that to look at him on that cross produced an involuntary reaction in the mind and, and in the eyes as, as you witness the horror of his physical condition and the, the mind and, and the eye begging the will of the person to immediately turn away from the horror that they beheld. Again, Isaiah declared concerning the Messiah, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And then while he was in this physical condition, they proceeded to lash his heart and his mind with their verbal abuse, their blasphemies, their mocking, their reviling, scorning, all directed at him, which he silently endured. And there's hardly anything of his physical condition, of the physical circumstance that he found himself in that would seem likely to produce a faith or a confidence in Jesus on any level, much less that on that scene someone would come to recognize him as the king of a kingdom. And yet that is exactly what one of the two thieves did. In the midst of all of the physical and verbal horror, he chooses to trust in Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. 
Not after witnessing the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. Not after witnessing Lazarus being raised from the dead. Not after hearing Jesus' preaching of the sermon on the mount, at the Mount of Beatitudes. Not after he healed every single person in need of healing in a city. Or when the crowds were pressing upon him for three and a half years just for a chance to touch him, not during his year of popularity, not at his triumphant entry, nor at his transfiguration when he became clothed with his heavenly glory. But this man puts his faith in Christ here at this scene while Jesus is hanging on a cross and not only hanging on a cross, but hanging on a cross in that condition. Jesus was crucified. The passage tells us he was crucified between two thieves. We're told here in Matthew, we're told here in Luke's gospel that they were criminals. But Matthew's gospel gives us greater clarification of what kind of criminal they were. And we're told that they were robbers. They were thieves. And the Greek word that's used to describe them as robbers and thieves It speaks of one who deprives another of his property openly. I mean, use of force and by violence. These weren't a couple of guys that stole a banana from the corner fruit stand and got caught. These were hardened criminals, violent, heartless, selfish men. It's very possible that Jesus was crucified with these thieves by the Roman officials in a further attempt to shame him, to discredit him, by publicly identifying him with the worst riffraff of the Roman Empire. And yet all of this was prophesied of by the Messiah of the Messiah by God through again Isaiah the prophet, seven hundred and forty years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah 53, therefore, I will divide him, speaking of the Messiah, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And then concerning his death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that initially... Both of the thieves mocked Jesus and scorned him while they hung on the crosses on either side of him. We notice concerning one of the thieves in verse 39, he mocks Jesus, he blasphemes Jesus. There's no faith in his heart toward Christ there, only scorn. And he's frustrated. He's frustrated at his powerlessness to change his circumstances there in being crucified. And he is also frustrated at what he perceives to be Jesus' powerlessness there in that same scene. And he declares that if Jesus is the Christ, then why didn't he save them all? As we've seen, Jesus could have easily saved himself from the agony of the cross, but it was because he did not save himself that he was able to provide Salvation to mankind. He saved others himself. He could not save. And then we notice the second thief in verses 40 through 42. At some point in time, 
the second thief ceased his mocking of Jesus while on the cross. Earlier, he had mocked Jesus as fully and as hurtfully and as blasphemously as the first thief had. But somewhere in the course of that long morning, that three hours of Jesus upon the cross from noon, from nine o'clock till noon, he will be on the cross until three, but that period of six hours is alive on the cross for that period of six hours, but it's divided into two segments of three hours. And somewhere in the course of that early three hours, the second thief ceased his mocking of Jesus. Something happened there on that scene that silenced him. And then he proceeded to do something even more remarkable. He then began to rebuke the mocking and the blasphemy of the other thief. And he proceeded to begin to defend Jesus while hanging on that cross. Now, you have to put yourself in the middle of that scene to appreciate it. Around the cross of Jesus, there is this sea of wagging heads and this unbroken roar of insults being hurled at him. The religious leaders are laughing among themselves and sneering. And then out of nowhere, a single voice, a lone voice, rises in defense of Jesus there, and wonder of wonders, it comes from one of the men on the two crosses. And it's an amazing scene, really. There could hardly be a more difficult scene in all of the world to publicly identify ourselves with Christ in, and yet he does it. The disciples are scattered in all directions out of fear for their lives. After all they've seen and heard for three and a half years, they can't be found at the scene of the crucifixion. Only hours before, in what was a far less challenging scene, the Apostle Peter denied Christ three times, and yet this man publicly identifies with Jesus in the middle of this scene. It's marvelous, really. And so marvelous that when I look at this change in his life, I begin to search the biblical record of the scene and I ask myself, what in the world happened to this man? What in the world happened? at the sight of that crucifixion, to produce this kind of change in this man. And I notice that there's only one thing that occurs on that scene from the time that they were all nailed to those crosses to the time that he ceases his mocking. Only one thing that could turn a mocker into a man of faith. And that one thing was Jesus' prayer. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm convinced when he heard that from that cross, from that man in that condition, that that prayer began to work on him and began to convict his mind and to convict his heart until he was forced to cease his mocking. 
And then that great statement of Christ continued its work upon his heart and upon his mind until he is at last defending Jesus, believing on Jesus, calling Jesus Lord. And perhaps for the first time in his life he hears about the forgiveness of God, that God, the God of the Bible, is a forgiving God. It isn't likely that he had heard that from any of the religious leaders of the day. The Jewish religious leaders meted out the idea of God's forgiveness very, very sparingly in Jesus' day, and they certainly didn't make it known to men and women who had made the kind of choices that this man had made in his life. He had made his bed, now he was going to lie in it. That was His place was set not only in this life, but all of the life to come. But then when he hears of the forgiveness of God from the lips of Jesus, it changed him completely. But I think it's good for us to remember as Christians the first time we heard about the fact that the God of the Bible was a forgiving God. After we had become conscious of the greatness of our sin and what hope it produced within us that we might be able to have a relationship with God if he was as forgiving as the Bible declared him to be that gave us hope for the forgiveness of our sins. Someone may ask, didn't we talk about forgiveness last week? Yes, we did, but I'm not through. (laughs) I'm not through marveling in my forgiveness. And marveling in the fact that our God is a forgiving God. The Bible says that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Sometimes you'll hear this, the conversion of this thief uh, dismissed as just a deathbed conversion. And that somehow this kind of conversion is inferior to others, somehow inferior in faith, inferior in substance. But the fact of the matter is that his faith is one of the most astonishing portraits of faith in the entire Bible. He rebukes the other thief, verse 40. He confesses his sin, verse 41. He declares Jesus to be without fault, verse 41. He then confesses Jesus to be the king of a kingdom, verse 42. He believes that Jesus' kingdom is going to be established, verse 42. He then asks to be a part of that kingdom, verse 42. He has absolute faith in Jesus' power to save him and in Jesus' willingness to save him, in verse 42. And he does it, marvel of marvels, there at Calvary, and God gave him the grace to do it. It's amazing. I look forward to meeting this man one day. You notice his request of Jesus in verse 42. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's not merely a request. It's also a confession concerning Christ, a statement of faith. He believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. He believed that Jesus was a king. 
He believed that Jesus would one day rule over this entire world. And so he said, when it happens, will you think of me? And Jesus' response, verse 43, Jesus gave this man far more than he ever asked for. The thief asked merely to be remembered by Jesus when he established his kingdom. Jesus promised him that today he would be with Jesus in paradise. That tells us that the man died that day on the cross. We'll see later that the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of each of the thieves as they hung upon the cross to hasten their death. So they would die that day in order that they wouldn't be left hanging on the cross as uh, during the, the feast day. And so he died just as they had intended that it would be so. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so he was. And following Jesus' death, people wonder sometimes, what did he do for the three days and the three nights between his death and his resurrection? He went down into Sheol. He went down into Hades, the waiting place. Described by Jesus as he spoke of Lazarus and a rich man in Luke chapter 16. As a place that at that time was made up of two compartments. The rich man went into the hot side of Hades, the waiting place. Hades is a waiting place. The eternal lake of fire is something altogether different. This Hades, this waiting place, half of it is hot. And then the other half of it is the place where Abraham was. The great father of faith of the Old Testament. It was a very comfortable place. It was called by Jesus as Abraham's bosom and that where a person went into one side or the other of the waiting place was on the basis of faith in the Old Testament, whether one looked forward in faith to the coming of the Messiah in the same way that we look back in faith upon the coming of the Messiah for salvation, those that did not put their faith for salvation in the coming Christ ended up in the hot side one day to stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment. The others lived a life in faith of the coming Messiah, and so they were on this comfortable side of things. And Jesus went down into Hades, and for three days and three nights he preached to them of his 33 and a half years of life, how he had come, how he had lived the three and a half years of his public ministry, how all of it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, that this was the Messiah that had been promised and that they had been waiting for. If you ever get a, a, a CD-ROM of, of that teaching, you get it to me. Amazing. And then in the words of the Apostle Paul, at the time of Jesus' resurrection, he led the captives from their captivity, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. In other words, he emptied out Abraham's bosom side of uh, Hades in order that they could now enter into heaven. No sinner could enter into heaven prior to the sacrifice of Christ being offered for us to be able to do that. He emptied out that section of Hades. The other continues to enlarge to this day to accommodate the number of people that choose to put themselves there. 
And as Jesus was in that place, delivering that three-day and three-night revelation concerning himself to all that were there, that forgiven thief saw it all, and he heard it all, and he experienced it all. What do we learn from this repentant thief? We learn that the Lord God is a forgiving God, and that's good news. We learn that in a single instant, God can turn the worst sinner into a saint. In one instant, he can change a person's entire life and eternity. We learn that it's never, ever too late to be saved or forgiven. The devil will tell us that this morning or on our deathbed or the final moments before we realize we're going to drown in this situation that we're in the middle of. Satan will come in and he'll speak to us and say, you're too terrible after all you've done and now you want to give your life to God when there's nothing left of it, only a few hours only a few minutes, only a few seconds. Do you think God is going to accept you here? It's so late an hour, but the Scriptures declare that He will. This thief had nothing to offer God. Nothing from his past. It was all gone, and not a second of it had been lived for God. He had nothing to offer of his present at that moment. He's hanging on a cross. There's no works that he can offer God at that moment. No sacraments, no water baptism, no Lord's Supper, no good works. There's no future he has to offer to God. He has no tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Lord, if you save me, I'll give you the rest of my life. He has no rest of his life. He's not going to survive the day. Going to be dead at the end of the day. And yet... Jesus saves him and is glad to do it. It's never too late to repent and to be forgiven and to be saved. We learn from this man the importance of using the opportunity that we have right now to make Jesus our Lord and not to waste the opportunity. This man wasn't going to get another chance to put his faith in Christ. And neither may you. Life is fragile in this world. Young, old, it doesn't matter. It can be gone in an instant. I remember when I was in high school, Mrs. Krieger, one of the finest teachers I had in all of my public education, fabulous teacher. And one day we, after lunch, I came to go into her class and everything's in an uproar. Come to find out that at that very lunch break, she had an aneurysm in her brain and she died right there on the spot. Life can move so fast. Things can change so fast. This man wasn't going to have another chance. And you may not have another chance either. We sit here today and we assume we'll have it tomorrow or we'll have it next week. But it's a foolish assumption. You and I may be as close to death this morning as he was when he hung upon that cross. And we don't know it. 
And thus we need to use the opportunity to be saved wisely. And here is a man. I mean, he had wasted his past. He had wasted his present. He had wasted his future. He wasted his reputation. He wasted his entire life. But the one thing he did not waste was an opportunity, the one opportunity that he had to make Jesus his Savior and his Lord. And because he did... His life was not a waste. Don't you waste the opportunity either. You better come this morning. You need to come this morning. When Jesus was crucified with those two thieves, again, it was doubtless with the intent of humiliating him, shaming him, an attempt to ruin his reputation by associating him, even in his death, with such flagrant and hated sinners and criminals as these two were in the Roman Empire. But they were completely unsuccessful because one of the two thieves ended up putting his faith in Christ and was saved and forgiven. It is God's glory to associate with sinners and to forgive them and to save them. It is God's glory to associate with sinners, to eat with them, to be with them, to draw them to him. And Christ's saving of you this morning will never, ever ruin his reputation, but it will always be to the praise of the glory of His grace. You'll become a testimony to how gracious God is in His willingness to save people like you and me. And then in turn, our lives will give hope to the entire world that what He has done in us, He will also do in them. We marvel at this man's faith, but even more so, we marvel at God's grace at that scene, that he's willing to identify with you and I, and that and only God can do it, and that in doing so, it enhances his reputation and never spoils it. What a God, what a Savior. If you don't know Christ this morning, you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Today's the day for you to be saved. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service, and they're going to have a badge on that says prayers. So you can identify them easily. And they'd love to answer your questions this morning, pray with you to receive the free gift of salvation into your life, and then give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. God will forgive you this morning. He'll save you this morning. And he will love to do it. But because he will love to do it, should not leave us in awe of his willingness to do it. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning for our salvation. We thank you for your willingness to save us, Lord. We thank you for your ability to save us, that you alone have the ability to forgive us and to save us. We thank you, Lord, that we have become trophies of your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that our lives are now lived to the praise of the glory of your grace. We praise you this morning, Lord, for the glory of your grace in saving us and leading us into the life that is ours morning, noon, and night. Thank you that we never have to doubt our salvation, to wonder whether you love us, to wonder whether we're still saved, to wonder about any of these things, Lord. We thank you that all of that's been settled in Christ. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being invited by you to put our faith in you. And then what you have made of us as a result, we give you thanks, Lord, not just from our lips this morning but from our hearts and from our minds, the prayers that you read, Lord, the prayers that bless you. We bless you this morning, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.